All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our sixth and final lesson of the art of marriage, where we learn how to create a wonderful masterpiece in our relationships. All right, over the last five weeks, we have presented a fairly rosy picture of marriage. In our first lesson, we spoke about how to achieve oneness of soul within marriage. In the second lesson, we spoke about how to achieve oneness of body in marriage. In the third lesson, we spoke about how to be a better giver. The fourth lesson, we spoke about, and by the way, better giver, we said, means that you got to know what the other person needs, as opposed to knowing what you need and then giving them what you need, because that's not giving. Right? The golf clubs. Remember the whole... Okay. In the fourth lesson, we spoke about how to be a better... How to become more of a mensch. And we said mensch is somebody that is able to control their natural reactions, etc. In our fifth lesson, which was last week, we spoke about how to protect and nurture the sacred spaces of our marriages and also how to expand uh, those sacred exclusive moments beyond perhaps the, the innermost core. Now, for the most part, throughout this series, we focused on the positive, the beautiful potential of marriage and how to realize that potential in our own relationships. However, all too often, there is a, another reality, a more tragic reality. And that is, of course, what I'm speaking about is, uh, is the, uh, the, the possibility and the reality of divorce. Now, we know divorce is tragic on many levels. It's for the husband for the wife, for the children, for the larger families, for the communities, etc. And it's something that uh, divorce is a reality that I believe almost everyone in this room has been touched in some way by, whether firsthand, whether through family, through friends. We're all on some level touched by divorce. Um, I don't know if, if, if all of you know, but my parents divorced when I was four. So I am as well a... You know, I firsthand experienced uh, the reality of divorce. And the truth is that even if, even when divorce is the only option in a relationship, it's still a tragedy. So in this lesson, what we're going to do is we're going to explore what is the Jewish take on divorce and address the following questions. I don't know if I put them up. I don't think I did. But we're going to address the following questions. Um, Not up. Number one. To what extent should we stick it out and make it work? When things get tough, what is Judaism? What's the advice? When do you stick it out? How long? Can you move that back a little bit? Oh, yeah, for sure. You got it? Okay. So to what extent, I'll just move back and forth a little bit. To what extent are we to stick it out and make it work? When is, question number one. Question number two, when is divorce a viable option in Jewish thought? A more perhaps philosophical question, but one that's very relevant, as we'll see. Why is divorce so widespread, so rampant today? The answer will surprise you. The answer that we're going to give will surprise you. Um, Are we to seek to intercede? There's nothing too exciting happening there. All right. um, Are we to seek to intercede and help someone else's marriage, or is it better to just mind your own business? You know, when do we get involved, when do we not get involved, should we get involved at all? And if we are to get involved and help, how exactly are we to help um, an individual, friend, family member, or whatever, who's going through a difficult time in their marriage, what guidance do we have as far as how to help? All right, so I am not one that 
typically uh, is keen on hyperbole, but I actually do believe, and I agree with the, um, uh, the subtitle of this lesson. As you see over here, the subtitle is Negotiating the Most Significant Challenge of Our Generation. I really believe that, indeed, that's, uh, that's accurate. Divorce is, is one, if not the most significant challenge of our generation. So let's see what Torah has to say about this, uh, this most relevant issue. All right, so um, just a disclaimer, obviously, it's a sensitive topic, and so we'll keep the discussion respectful and sensitive to the, uh, to the topic at hand. Now, let's, uh, let's begin. We've spoken about the profound oneness of body and soul that is the stuff of marriage. We presented it as starting with the very first couple, Adam and Eve. We explained that Adam and Eve originated as one being, who were divided into two and who eventually reunited, or soon thereafter reunited, in marriage. And we said that that is the model of oneness, or for oneness, that we all seek to achieve in marriage, where two become one, or really two halves become whole once again. There's another idea here that we kind of glossed over, and that is, how long did the, uh, the happiness of Adam and Eve last? Not too long, right? What? Say it again. Years were very long. But how? But how long did it last? How long were they happy before their first fight? I don't have an exact time, but it was it was a few hours, not more than that. What happened next? We all know what happened. What happened? Yeah, the snake got involved. But the sin, uh, the sin of the tree of knowledge, they ate from the tree of knowledge, what happens? So the Torah tells us that God confronts Adam, and he says to Adam, what's up? I gave you one law. Don't eat from the tree. One rule you had to follow. Don't eat from the tree. Why did you eat from the tree? What does he say? He said, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. Totally throws Eve under the bus. You have to understand, the whole happy, oh, we're one, we were one, we were separated, it's no good to be, we're one again, we're married. It took a few hours for Adam to totally throw Eve under the bus and say, God, you know what, hey, listen, it wasn't me, I didn't mean to, she, I had no idea what it was. She just totally gave me something. By the way, some commentaries say that he was actually right. Because the tree of, some commentaries, that the tree of knowledge, there's a big dispute in the Talmud what it was, some say that it was grapes, it was a great. It was a grapevine, and what Eve did was she squeezed the grapes, made wine, uh, some insta wine, whatever, maybe kerem, and she squeezed it into the into a cup. Adam drinks it, so it didn't look like the grapes. He says, "I don't know. I just drank whatever." The point is, he totally throws her under the bus. Yeah. Didn't God say um, we go forth and multiply? Right. Yes. And they couldn't really do that until that took place. Correct. Until... No, 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 no. They could do that before. They didn't know... They weren't conscious of their nakedness. Right. As, as, a, as a disconnect from their purpose. This is, this is another discussion. What happened? What was the consciousness? What was the knowledge that was gained? The, the way it's explained in Kabbalah is that what they gained was a knowledge or an awareness of self which took them out of the moment, out of the experience. You know, when you're in an experience, you're in the moment, you're not, you're not self-conscious. They became shameful. They realized, the, Torah, the Torah says soon after they, the sin they ate, they realized that they were unclothed, and they were embarrassed. They were ashamed. And so God hooked them up with some, some clothing. So what, what, what's the shame concept? You know, a child, a little child, is not ashamed of running around without any clothes on. Why? Because a child doesn't have that, that self consciousness. 
is not conscious of self. The child's in the moment, living in the moment. The more self-aware we are, the more self-conscious we are, and the more we're, 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 we're able to be ashamed, embarrassed, etc. The gift of uh, the reality before the sin was that they were just in the moment. They were in the zone. They were just serving God and in the garden. They weren't at all thinking about themselves. So that's the distinction that happened. But they were able to be fruitful and multiply before, um, before the sin. Yeah. Alright. So, marital disharmony is not a new concept. It existed in the original Garden of Eden. It existed with Adam and Eve. In fact, if you think your disagreements might be uh, not great, listen to this. The Midrash says that Adam and Eve separated from each other for 130 years following the sin of the tree of knowledge. Now I know Adam lived to about 970, so if you factor in, it's still about a decade. It's still about a decade of separation. So th- there's definitely a, uh, a template, a source for, uh, for marital disharmony. Well, so they didn't have any children during that time. They did. But they separated. They had children before the sin. Oh, for, uh, they, were, they were quick acting. There was no fool around that garden. Or there was. Or there, or there was, exactly. Now, so, um, so this, is, this is the template. So disharmony in marriage is nothing new, but it's still tragic, especially when it leads to divorce. If divorce is tragic, as we said, on any level, in every society, in any society, we might say how much more so is it a tragedy, a disaster from a Jewish perspective. Because as we've explained throughout the course, Judaism uh, looks at marriage as a sacred union as a bond where two halves become one, where there's oneness introduced between souls and bodies. Um, so much potential for holiness and oneness. We said that uh, the, the, the man and woman in marriage, they are the vessel for divine presence. And so the undoing of that uh, with divorce is indeed all the more devastating from a Jewish perspective. Let's take a look at how the Talmud expresses this idea. Howard, we begin with you. Please read text number one on page So, according to the Talmud, attracted Gittin, talks about the laws of divorce. The Talmud says that when one divorces his wife, the altar sheds tears. So, this is a dramatic representation of the concept of the, of the tragedy of divorce. The, the altar itself is, uh, is weeping. And, and here's the point. No matter how necessary, no matter how amicable, perhaps, the divorce is, it's still weep-worthy. Where there was one, now there are two. Yeah, you think about it. We're talking about breaking apart two halves of one soul. Even if it has to happen, even if, it's, if, if, if both parties are on the same page, it's still, a, uh, it's, still a, it's still a ripping apart on some level. Let's take a look at text number two, which kind of uh, illustrates this concept um, in, a, in a powerful way. 149, text two. Charna, take it away. Divorce is a spiritual amputation severing one part of 
course, like an amputation is a tragedy, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. Our attitude to divorce parallels our attitude to the amputation of a limb in several ways. It is painful. When a limb becomes so diseased that it endangers the rest of the body, the patient is faced with a horrible choice. To face the pain of amputation or risk worse suffering by leaving things as they are. If the future risks are high enough to clearly outweigh the present pain, the right thing to do is cut off the limb. Similarly, divorce is painful for all involved, but it is the right choice when remaining in an unhealthy relationship. If remaining, when remaining in an unhealthy relationship will only cause more damage, suffering, and heart. It is the last resort. We do everything possible to avoid leading to everything. If there is a remote chance that the limb can be salvaged, even with great effort and expense, it is worth a try. Only after exhausting all other possibilities would we resort to amputation. Same with divorce. It is only considered after counseling and sincere efforts to change food So Rabbi Moss is writing there in this, in this article... Uh, kind of, you know, drawing a parallel between divorce and amputation, as we just read, that it is, number one, a painful experience, and number two, a last resort. That's, the, that's basically the Jewish take on, on divorce, in a nutshell, if you will. And, you know, what we see is that the, the Jewish view on divorce really is shaped by its attitude on marriage. Since marriage is such a sacred ideal, since marriage is such a positively transforming reality, such an ideal state of, uh, of holiness, of sacredness, etc. When that is undone, it is indeed tragic. And it indeed should only be in a case of a last resort. So now, that's, this is the general Jewish take on divorce. Now, once we have the Jewish perspective, the almost, I would call it, the philosophy on divorce, let's look at what the laws are. What are the laws? What, what, how do, what does Jewish law say about grounds uh, for divorce. Let's take a look at learning interaction number one on page 150. This is a very interesting interaction. All right, look at the question over there. You are, so it's going to involve some, uh, some role play. You are a rabbinic scholar and authority on Jewish law. You. And your mandate is upholding Torah and family values. You also spend considerable time counseling quarreling couples, and sadly have seen many a couple divorce over relatively petty issues. Would you consider enacting a law to help ensure that couples don't divorce over trivialities? If yes, what do you believe should constitute reasonable grounds for divorce? The options are irreconcilable differences, cruel treatment, abandonment, adultery, mutual agreement to separate other... Or, I would not legislate any grounds if either spouse insists on divorcing, that should remain his or her prerogative. Understand the question? In other words, not what, what you feel, but if you are, and you are, a rabbinic scholar and authority in Jewish law, and your mandate is to uphold Torah and family values, etc., would you consider enacting um, limitations or, or restrictions or guidelines for reasonable grounds for divorce, or would you, uh, would you not legislate any grounds? So don't answer the question verbally. Take a second, take a pen, piece of paper or the book, and check off what you think. You can answer more than one answer. Although if you answer the last one, it would be probably uh, not applicable to answer anything else. But take, take 30 seconds, check some boxes, and we'll, uh, we'll reconvene.
And begin. Fifteen seconds left. Get those answers in. Okay, let's, uh, let's reconvene. Again, the question is, what do you believe constitutes reasonable grounds for divorce? According to Jewish law, or what should be reasonable grounds for divorce? What do you think? Who's got something? Okay. No fault. A no fault, uh, no fault divorce. Right? That's what's, uh, in FCA, rules, laws of divorce go state by state, and the, the the legal term for this is called no fault. You don't have to state a reason. Yeah. But but more than that, because I don't think anybody knows what goes on except the two people involved. Sure. And once you have outside people saying you need to do this or you need to do that or, or because of this, because of that because they will never know the whole story that's, 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 that's absolutely true okay, so again, but is this you assuming the role of a rabbinic scholar and authority in Jewish law or is this your As a scholar, yes. good, okay, good good, and we had some, some agreements over here as well any, uh, we want to share any reasons I agree very much with her, like you can go to counseling, and a counselor thinks one way, and hears both sides, and he's making, having his own opinion. Right. He's not there. So I just don't think anyone has the right to say, yes, you should, or no, you should. The only thing that I like, and I think in Georgia, I'm not sure, that you can file for divorce, but you can't get divorced for like a year. And I think that's so people maybe will. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I just believe in keeping government out of private lives. Okay. Well, this is not government. This is Torah. Torah is very much about getting involved in our lives. That's for sure. No, I understand what you're saying. Oh, no. I, trust me. I understand exactly what you're saying. I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, Torah is definitely about uh, getting involved. But, yeah. Okay. Good. And it, yeah. I remember when I studied philosophy many years ago. One of the things we would say when arguments got very but once, one side was changing the other. It was a philosophy for this, and I forgot who it was, that a man or a woman in this case who does not wish to be convinced will not be convinced. Right. And, and based upon that, so if you have one spouse, if it's a man or a woman who says, uh, no matter what, I'm a divorce, then it's something going to work better. Okay, so I'm with you. So I, I would chalk that up to irreconcilable differences. Like, there, i.e., doesn't one party doesn't want to doesn't want to? That's a look again. That's somebody saying I don't agree with that. But for that person, it's 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 a it's a deal breaker. Okay, good. All right. I would do okay.
Okay, so what you're saying, so I think what you're saying is that according to the, the Jewish philosophy on marriage and divorce that we presented, which is that it is um, a tragedy, it's a commitment, it's something beautiful, it's ripping apart two souls when, if the divorce happens, etc. So we ought to avoid it at all costs. If uh, uh, an unusual situation happens, then of course we're going to allow it, but... Okay, good. Let's take a look at what, at what the law actually says. Let's take a look at what Torah says. Um... Laura, take away, take it away on page 151, text 3a, please. If a man takes a wife and is intimate with her, and it happens that she does not find favor in his eyes, for he discovers in her an immoral matter, then he writes for her a bill of divorce, places it into her hand, and sends her away from his house. So here we have the basic source in Torah for the concept of get, which is divorce. It, based on this reading, and only this reading, does it seem like Torah is giving us a grounds for divorce? What is stated, what is not stated? Well, it's only giving one half the grounds of divorce. Which is? Oh, yeah, okay, no, I understand that. Right, and Halach and, Jewishan and talks about the other half as well. But let's, let's just, we're going to limit, we're going to start, oh, we're going to start over here. Based on this verse, this one verse, totally taken out, you know, in isolation. Is there a reason that we can discover here that the Torah is giving? Yeah. That are grounds? If he doesn't like having sex with her, he can get a gift. Is that what it says? Apparently. No. no. Well, no. She doesn't like it. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. She does not find favor in his eyes, and that's after for he does. intimates. Yeah. Well, he discovers in her, for he discovers in her an immoral matter. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. You can get a list of women this way. Say it again? I, you have to define a moral matter because you can get somebody totally despicable who just likes to bed young women and marry one after another and then say, ah, she's immoral, she's immoral. And well, you can have that in any system. I, uh, so, is it saying that she's not a virgin? No. No. The way this is understood by the commentaries is simply as follows. What we're talking about here is, well, the truth is, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not, the Talmud has a three... Uh, has three opinions on this. The Talmud cites three opinions on this. I'll tell you the most basic opinion. This is what I thought people were going to come up with. You guys were going to come up with. The, the basic translation of a moral ma- matter is infidelity. So if... The idea, it's, it's not like... We're not talking about the same, uh, the same three hours or the same hour or the same whatever. It's not like... you know in what, It's... If a fellow marries a woman and etc., they consummate the marriage, and then she doesn't find favor in his eyes, for he discovers in her a moral matter. In other words, if there's infidelity, so then he writes for a bill of divorce. This is the basic on her part. Again, there's there's another discussion about criteria for divorce, grounds for divorce for divorce the other way as well. But let's present the basic understanding of, of this verse that has a three way dispute in text three B. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes, it is. Because we're all such sexual beings. Right. So if the Torah is so clearly understanding of that, it, it seems a little harsh that if a sin is... I, I'm not saying that being unfaithful is okay. However, if there's so much time devoted in the Torah to talking about 
how we are such sexual The reality of temptation. Yes, the reality of temptation. Then where is where is um, the peace of forgiveness? It's not is it saying that you Here's the question of if if uh, Torah is saying he has to divorce her. I mean that's that's another question. Saying he has to divorce her, or this is legal grounds for divorce in the first place, right? That's that's the other question. Look again, we're pulling out raw text from the Torah, a translation of a verse. So it's really you know if we're trying to decipher from the English right now, we're really going to be shorthanded. We have to work with the commentaries and and, and the main one that we're going to we're going to work with is the Talmud. So we're going to see what the Talmud says. And the understanding is of course the temptations there, of course. The question is what are, what are the halachic legal grounds according to the Jewish law? What are the legal grounds for divorce? If we're trying to uphold the uh, the um, the sanctity of marriage. Okay, that's the question. Based on 3A, what are the biblically accepted grounds for divorce? Let's continue. Bobby, continue text 3B151. Three uh, pronged dispute. By the way, if this sounds ridiculous, just hold. Wait, 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 wait. There's much more. There's much more to, to, to the story than we're seeing right here, as we'll see soon. Yeah, continue. Yes. Yes, it gets worse. Another more attractive than she, as it is stated, and it happens. So it happens that she does not. So here, so again, it gets it gets from okay to what to huh? <laughs> this is l- listen to what the three-way dispute is. School of <laughs> no need to repeat, but I want to repeat it just to get the full impact again. The school of Shami, the Shami's Academy says, you know what? You stick it out. You work it through only if there's infidelity and the marriage bond, the sacred sanctity, that intimacy is broken, then there's, again, again, there's, you want a, a woman's ground for divorce? I have it here. And I, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Or we won't get to it. The point is, we're, I, want to st- I want to stick with this. Top. It, this is going to illuminate a lot of areas for both men and women. So, whole, I, I know it's a question of why are we only speaking about the men? Huh? Have faith. Exactly. You've got to have faith. Wait a second. Wait a second. So the first opinion says only if there's infidelity, then it's a, then it's a, then it, then there's grounds for divorce. Otherwise, what divorce? Stick it out. Hillel says, no, no, you don't need, you don't need to wait for infidelity. Even if you burnt your food, go. That's it. See you later. You're out. Next. God forbid. But this is what it sounds like, right? At least Rabbi Kiva says, forget that. She doesn't do anything. It, He's you're, never lost his legs. You're. It, hold on. Rabbi Kiva said. Wait, 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 wait. Rabbi Kiva says. Rabbi Kiva says. Huh? Huh? You find somebody else. You find somebody else. Yeah, find somebody more attractive. That's it. That's it. Now, hold. Before we explain what in the world is going on here in the Talmud, before we explain that, let's see where they got these ideas from the verse. How do we see from the verse? 
very happily, very happily as well. The Talmud tells us, the, no, the Talmud tells us about their happy marriages. In fact, yes. Well, they were careful not to burn the dishes. <laughs> All right, let's um, let, let's let's take a look and see how they figure this out from the verse. Shammai, how does where does Shammai get his idea from? Well, the Torah says if he does not find if she does not find favor in his eyes, for he discovers in her an immoral matter. So he says, well, what's the grounds for divorce? Only if there's immorality, only if there's adultery, infidelity, etc. Okay, that's that's opinion number one. Hillel Hillel says like this: the Torah could have said he discovers in her immorality. What's with the immoral matter, the extra word matter, which in the Hebrew is ervas davar, could have just a kimatsava erva. See, it doesn't really work in English. Could have just, in the Hebrew, the Torah could have just said, if he finds within her, or discovers, or it comes to light that there was immorality, i.e., infidelity. Why the extra word davar, which means a matter of infidelity or immorality? What's with the matter? So Hillel extends it to any other matter. Any other matter that's immoral, like burning his dish. That's what he says. Look, look back in the Talmud, right? A school of Hillel taught, even if she burns his dish, as it says, because he discovers in her an immoral act or any other malicious matter. In other words, the matter is the, the additional word matter comes to include other types of matters that are also, quote unquote, immoral, as we'll see what that means. It's not only burning a dish. Burning a dish here is a euphemism. We'll see that in a second what that means. Rabbi Kiva, though, says something else. He says, well, you've got to reinterpret. He's, he interprets the verse completely differently. He says there's two things happening. The verse says, number one, a person can divorce his wife if she does not find favor in his eyes. That's it. And also, if there's a morality. But he, he puts the he says the comma and the word for have to be adjusted. Not the comma, but the word for. It hap- if a man takes a wife and is intimate with her, and it happens that she does not find favor in his eyes. That's it. That's legal grounds. You don't find favor... I, I liked you, I don't like you, I find somebody else more attractive. And he discovers in her an immoral matter, or, or he discovers in her an immoral, an, an immoral matter. It doesn't make a difference, it doesn't have to only be that that triggers the grounds, the legal grounds for divorce in Judaism and Jewish, Jewish law. Um, the word for is not a qualifier, the word for in Hebrew is key. Key could mean for, it could also mean something else. It's if, whatever, it has four different meanings. The number four. But it doesn't have to be a qualifier to only modify and to limit it to this express. So that's what Rabbi Kiva says. Even if he straight up doesn't find, she doesn't find favor in his eyes anymore for whatever reason. Now, just to, just to present this idea. Now, we don't have... There are other places in the Talmud that speak about these laws. These are codified in the, the book of Jewish law. You don't have to... Um, you don't have to worry that these that these rules that these laws aren't there. The reason why it's not why it's not in the book in the text is because this Talmudic dispute is going to illuminate a lot, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago is going to illuminate a lot of deep ideas about marriage through divorce. So this happens to have a very good lesson instruction. But generally, of course, there are laws regarding a woman's ground for divorce. Um, Okay, okay, husband refuses to support his wife, to be intimate, physically abuses his wife, has a foul body odor or halitosis. <laughs> That's what it says, is religiously lax. There are other ones as well that are missing here. If he's, if he's fooling around on the side, etc. So there are definitely rules here that are in... I'm not sure why that was left out. Maybe there's more? No. Okay. So there are definitely rules here the other way around. But again, our focus is on this specific section of the Talmud because it is very illustrated. First of all, it's, at first glance, it makes no sense. A legal, the same Jewish perspective that says that marriage is the holy of holies, 
It's such a sacred experience. It brings together two people as one. As we said in one of the earlier lessons, it's the space in which God's presence is found here on earth. And you have to wait a whole year before you can... Got to wait a whole year. I and mean, it's like a whole situation. And we, Rabbi Kiva says, yeah, if you find somebody more attractive, no problem. Just divorce her. Find somebody else. What? What happened to this holy experience? Kedushin, holiness, kadosh. What happened? Let's explain. I think it's a great question. I mean, you read it, it's like, what? Let's begin with Hillel. Because again, Shammai, the academy of Shammai we get. He said the, that academy, by the way, Hillel and Shammai were individuals. They each had a, an academy that continued scholarship after they passed on. So this was cited by the academies of Hillel and Shammai. I may interchange with Hillel and Shammai. Don't be alarmed. It's them or their academies. I'm, I'm going to interchange, even though precisely it's their academy. The academy of Hillel, of Shammai, is easily understood. Yeah. Last option, last resort, only if, as I said, only if there's infidelity and then, okay, but otherwise. Hillel says something else. Hillel says, wait, even if she burns his dish. Now, here, here are some things to, uh, to qualify. Number one, number one, we're not talking about an accident or negligence. We're talking about malice. This is the way it's understood. He was talking about malicious intent to harm. And we're not talking about burnt food. We're talking about any hurtful or malicious behavior. Any burnt food is just it's either an example or it's a it's an allegorical example. The point is it's any hurtful or malicious behavior that's done maliciously. And it's not a one time isolated event. We're talking about a pattern of behavior. So Hill is saying that what is a valid grounds for divorce in Jewish law? It's when one of the spouses is intentionally doing things to pain, um, hurt, harass, abuse the other. Now, we're not talking about physical abuse, because that's for sure out of the picture. Torah says, which means you have to take care of your health. So if there's, God forbid, if somebody is, God forbid, in a physically abusive relationship, Jewish law says you can't even be there. So that's without question. That's not even up, we're not even up for discussion. Physical abuse, sexual, that's not even, we're not even talking about that. We're talking here about burning the food means somebody, spouse is driving you crazy. They're driving you crazy. And it's not, it's not, it didn't just happen once, it's, there's a pattern, it's not by accident, it was on purpose, and there's intent there, and etc. So says Hillel, that's grounds for divorce. And, uh, you know, your spouse is driving you Meshuggah on purpose. That's what he says. Alright, take a look at text 5. It's, uh, the Talmud puts it in a, uh, an interesting way. Howard, 153. Text 5, we're skipping 4. We're leapfrogging 4. person cannot live together with a snake in one basket. That's it. You left the Talmud is away with words. A person cannot live together with a snake in one basket. So, if one spouse is purposefully harming the other, again, not phys- physically, of course, but some, in other ways, right, then, uh, according to Hillel, grounds for divorce. 
So now we understand the contrast between Shammai, or the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hill. Shammai says, stick it out. Even if it's difficult, even if they're driving you crazy, on purpose, right? I can't live with them. Shammai says, sacrifice everything for your marriage. That's what he says. It takes a very harsh stance. Harsh in the sense of very strong, very stringent stance. Says, stick it out. Now, when is the one exception? Is the one exception aside from physical abuse? Obviously, the one exception is infidelity. He said because his opinion is infidelity means that that sacred bond of marriage has already been broken. Now, does it mean you have to divorce? Could there be forgiveness? That's another discussion. But he says the allowance, at least for divorce, the legal grounds for divorce is when there's infidelity. But that's the only grounds. They're driving you crazy on purpose. They're, all right, so you'll, you'll, you'll work with it. Work, you know, work it out, deal with it, etc. He takes, again, a very stringent perspective. Hillel, who's always the more understanding personality, Hillel is always the kinder, gentler, more understanding personality, he disagrees. Hillel says, you know what? It's also a valid grounds for divorce when there's a pattern of malicious behavior and this, and this situation is unbearable. It's, 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 I can't live with this person anymore. Why, infidelity? No, not infidelity. Well, I can't live with them anymore. He says, okay. Hillel says, you can't live with them? All right, that's the grounds for divorce. After all, you can't live with a snake in the house, in one basket, etc. So here we have the distinction between Hillel and Shammai. Does this make sense? Are we all on the same page here? Yes, no? Okay, yeah. Why, using a euphemism like burning the food? The Talmud has very strange expressions. When I say strange, what I mean is there's a, there a slang that was used. For example, I'll give you, I'll give you a, totally not related, but illustrates this concept. The Talmud has, uh, Jewish law has a concept known as psikresha. It's Aramaic, for means cutting off the head. Psikresha v'layamus. You cut off the head, it's not going to die. What, what does this mean? It means doing something that you know is going to cause something else. You can't say, uh, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen when I hit the light. I don't really mean to hit the light. I'm just going to, you know, casually go, oh, I need to, oh, my arm, that's so sore, I need to move it up. Oh, the light went off. Oh, whoops, oh, it's Shabbos. Oh, well, good, I can sleep now. It's called psikresha. Psikresha means when you're doing something, you know what, it, you know what it's going to accomplish, but you're pretending like, I'm not doing that, I'm just doing something else, but you know what, it, what's, what, what it's going to cause. It's, so the Talmud says, psikresha v'layamus. It's like a child, apparently. The children back in the day played with the chickens. So, right, they were you know, agriculture, they had farms, chickens, livestock, whatever. So they played with the chickens. So it's, imagine a kid says, I want to play with the chicken head. So I want to cut off the... I'm saying... These are the expressions. So, I want to I I play with the head, so I'm going to cut off the head, because it's easier than the whole thing. But I don't want to kill the chicken. I just want to play with the head. Said, no, seriously, you're going to play with the head? You're going to... Of course. So, even though that's not your intention, but it's going to happen anyway. So, there's a Talmudic idea, a Lachic idea that says that if you do something, and your purported purpose is not... It's, you're not intending to do it, but you know it's going to happen, so then you can't do it. Another example. Let me give you another example. You want to drag a chair from one side, you have a yard that's made of earth, a garden, right? Forget the grass, there's earth there. And you want to drag a heavy wooden lawn chair from one corner to the other. 
and it's Shabbos. You're in, you're, you're in a fence, everything should be kosher here. You're just moving it from one side to the other. Are you allowed to or not? So, what's wrong with moving a chair? doesn't sound like, oh, I'm violating anything. However, there's another issue called... Say it? Plowing. Plowing. What you're doing is, as you're dragging the chair, you're creating... What are you creating? Furrows? Furrows in the ground that theoretically could be used for planting. Now, it wasn't your attention. You may not have seeds at the ready, but there's a prohibition against plowing. And you can say from today to tomorrow, I'm not, pl- I'm not plowing. I'm just moving a chair. Psik reish of almost. Well, you think you're going to drag a chair and it's not going to make a uh, furrow? Of course it's going to happen. So, who, who are you fooling? So what I'm saying is like this. The reason why I bring this up is the, t- the Talmud ex- expresses this by psik reish of almost. You're going to cut up that, it's not going to die. What are we talking about? Only cases where you're cutting off heads and you're not expecting death? Of course not. Them are chickens? It's a concept. So burning the food, right? It's a phrase that's used that means purposely driving the other person crazy. Harassing them. That's what it means. So don't, it's, it's, not tri- it's not trivial. Burning. Your question was, why are we trivializing it? What I'm trying to say is, this is the slang. This is the lingo. You know, when you, when you, yeah, this is the lingo that the Talmud uses. Why doesn't it just say it? Yeah, yeah that's, that's always the question. And the answer is, it would take away the fun. No, I'm kidding. It, it, this, is, this is the way these things are sometimes expressed. Look, we have our own ways of expressing ourselves. And if you looked at, you looked at our expressions in 2,000 years, you also might say, what were they talking about? Expressions changed and evolved. That was how they spoke. That's how they wrote. That's how they discussed. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. This is a discussion. But the point is clear. All the commentators, everyone understands the same way. A spouse burns toast. You may even have a slide here. Oh, this is minutia details, right? Yeah. Oh, that's it. You're out. Of course not. No one would ever imagine that that would be a valid grounds. It means if the spouse is purposefully, maliciously harming, right? Exactly, exactly, right? It's driving you sugar on purpose to get into you. That's just okay. You can't, how do you live with that? It's an abusive spouse. So again, Shammai says, no, you got to live with it. You got to live with it and you got to work it. You stick it out only if there's infidelity because that breaks, because that's an act of, of defying the bond of marriage. But otherwise, stick it out. Hill says, really, stick it out. There's another, there's a few more layers of Hill that I want to bring out that, 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 that reveal more depth to Hill's opinion. No, 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 according, oh, according to Hillel? Yeah. Oh, of course, no, he's not, he's not taking away from the first, that he's adding on another grounds for the, he's saying, Shammai says only infidelity, Hill says not only infidelity, but also, yeah, yeah it's adding on, yes, 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 it's or. Now, um, some layers of depth behind Hillel's explanation. First of all, oh, some commentators explain like this, what is the, what is the, what is the, what is Hillel saying? Or what's the reason behind Hillel's opinion? Because maybe Shammai's right. Maybe you should stick it out. Hillel's also, some commenters, it's better to divorce in this situation when the, when the other is driving you crazy than to stick it out. Possibly because it could lead to, in other words, if there wasn't, it, theoretically, if there weren't legal, Jewish legal grounds for divorce in that situation, it could lead a person to do something immoral and illegal. 
Literally, literally commentators are saying, hitmen, prostitutes, I mean, this, it, we're talking about a person being driven to madness, right, because of the other. So Hill says, you know what, it's healthy for everybody. It's, it, it, there's, there's unhealthy energy here. Walk away. Now, but there's an allowance to it. Of course, the person could work it out, and, 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 and I, you know, we would certainly advocate that, but the allowance is there. There's another idea here, and that is the allowance for divorce in a situation where one spouse is acting like a jerk, for lack of better terminology, can be a deterrent to that sort of behavior in the first place. Think about it. If, imagine if divorce wasn't an option. I know, I know the perspective sounded like the, the angle that we were taking here, or a lot of us, was going the other way. So I understand the perspective started from the other way. But if we, if we try to lock it in back to the, to the traditional perspective, if you will, um, imagine if divorce wa- weren't an option. There would be very little incentive. There might, we might be encouraging or, or discouraging people to work on themselves and be a match. In other words, if there was no possibility that the other person can can walk away. It's like, well, I can be as obnoxious as I want because you can't walk away anyway. There's no escape clause. There's no consequence. That's exactly the point. So that's why Hillel says there has to be a consequence, even if we're not going to use it because otherwise, you know, lesson four was all about how to be a mensch. Well, why should it be a mensch? What are you going to do about it? So so Hillel says, oh, what are you going to do about it? They can walk away. Divorce is possible. Be a mensch. Don't be like that. Don't burn the toast. Right? Okay. Let's understand Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, I believe, is the most... Not I believe. Rabbi Akiva clearly is, is not understood. Um, Rabbi Akiva was the one who said that you can divorce legal grounds if you find somebody more attractive. So how can we possibly understand this on any level, let alone in a Jewish context? Now again, I know in a, in a no-fault... Uh, when, the, when the law states there's no fault, you, no, you know, no fault divorce, as it does in Georgia and many states, so then you don't have to state a reason. It's, it could be because you found somebody more attractive. That's perfectly legal grounds. But from a Jewish perspective, Rabbi Akiva, first of all, you know what Rabbi Akiva said? He said many things. But what was one of his main teachings? Well, he said, the Torah says, love your fellows yourself. And Rabbi Akiva said, this is the great principle of Torah, love your fellows yourself. Oh, really? You're loving them so much that you're walking away because you found somebody more attractive? Come on, how is that How is that love? How is that nice? On any level. Especially from a Jewish perspective. So, you know, one possible answer, it's not a good answer. One, one answer that I've seen, and that's, uh, that's cited, that's alluded to in one of the texts over here, is that, you know, maybe we could say, and again, it's a very weak argument, that Rabbi Kiva is the ultimate romantic. Ooh, romantic. How's he so romantic? Walk away if you don't. He's the ultimate romantic. And he's saying that you have to be so in love with your spouse. And if, if you're not so in love, so then, then, then you've got to marry the one who you're in love with. In other words, you have to be so enthralled, so, you know, excited about your spouse, and otherwise it's not... Marriage is lacking, so therefore you gotta you gotta take steps to to get to to, to that place. It's a, it's I don't like this answer. Text number six kind of um, evokes this idea. It's from the Zohar from Kabbalah. Dwayne, take it away. Text six, page one fifty three. Adam began to sing Eve's praises. This shall be called woman. This is the peerless one. This is the pride of the house who surpasses all other women. 
uh, as a human being surpasses an ape. This one is perfect in all points, and she alone merits the title of woman. Um, and again, the compliment there is probably, again, lost in translation. You are more beautiful than other women. More than, uh, as much? You are as, you as, you are more beautiful than other women as human beings in general surpass apes. Wait, <laughs> was that a compliment? So, what? Yeah, she was well, the first non-ape female ever. <laughs> Tr- trust me, I get it. I'm just saying it's funny. That's the other issue, right? What you are surpass all other women. Who are we talking about here? <laughs> exactly. You're you're in the top. You're at least in the top two. <laughs> what? What is? <laughs> this I don't know. This I don't know. So. What's the story then of that's that's another that's another class. We'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that's that's a real that's a that's a good topic. But that's going to take us too far. But look what he says here again. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff here from from this quote from from Kabbalah from the Zohar. But what's the point? The point is that Adam is singing her praises finer than any other woman, peerless amongst women, most beautiful. You surpass apes. Okay, he, I, I know that. Okay, but so maybe Rabbi Kiva saying the same thing. You have to be able to say that about your spouse, and if not, so then what kind of marriage is that? So it's it is legal grounds for divorce because you have to be able to really believe that and really feel that you have to be authentic, you have to be true. So if you find somebody more attractive, all right, so you got to jump ship. Uh, we don't like this answer. Here's another way to look at Rabbi Kiva's statement. I think you'll like it. And the truth is, it it kind of goes along with a lot of the original sentiment from the class. And for all for answers, when you have a question, where do you turn? Huh? No. Where, where, if you have a question, huh? No, you ask another question. But where do you look for answers? Where do we look for answers? Where else? Google. So we're going to look to Google for this answer as well. <laughs> Thanks. Right, we're going to look to Google for that. Google always has the answers and has the answers to help us understand Rabbi Akiva and how profound his statement was. You'll see, you'll see. Here's, 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 here's a little bit about Google. So, here's the truth. And we may like it or we may not like it. They have a lot of information on you. They got a lot on you. You know what they got on you? Huh? Google or Yokita? No, no, no. Uh, both. No, I'm kidding. Google. They have, and some, by the way, some are creeped out about this. Like, oh my gosh, how much information does Google have on the servers? They have your emails. They have your photos. Again, Assuming that you're using the full suite of Google software. If you're not, that's fine. But just indulge my uh, paranoia, please. They have your emails, your photos, your browsing history, your chats, phone calls, if you use Google Voice, your documents, if you use Google Docs. They have all this stuff. They're watching. They're everywhere. And And that's just the stuff that we know about that they have. Who knows what else they have. And again, some people are creeped out about this. So a group got together in 2011. And they called themselves the Data Liberation Front. Everybody hear this? Data Liberation Front. Their mission, they're dedicated, their mission is to educate and provide the tools for for all of us, you and I, to cleanly extract our personal data from Google without a trace. To pull our stuff out of Google. This is their stated purpose. Who do you think is behind this Data Liberation Front? Who do you think? Google. 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 The answer is Google. You ready? 
You can Google it on your phones now. Or just go to Google uh, to dataliberation.org. Oh, man. Why, why is this coming up here? Here. It's Google. It's classic Google-rific psychology. This is dataliberation.org. That's the website. If you look inside, you can't see it from where you are probably. There's a little Google logo right in there. DL with a fist. Empowerment. Sponsored by Google. Why? Makes no sense. Google itself, this site is a central location information on how to move your data in and out of Google products. Welcome. Click, okay. Data Liberation Front is an engineering team at Google whose singular goal is to make it easier for users to move their data in and out of Google products. We do this because we believe that you should be able to export any data that you create in a product. Blah, blah, blah. So here's what it says in the, in, the, in the print in the red. Users should be able to control the data they store in any of Google's products. Our team's goal is to make it easier to move data in and out. Okay, and include, so they throw in the in, but it's really about the out. It's giving you the ability to extract your data and pull it out of Google. Okay, it's from Google by Google. Here's the big question, why? And they ask it in the FAQs. They're frequently on the site. FAQs. Okay, if you clicked on that, I can actually pull up the live page here, but I'm not going to. If you pull up the live page, you'll see in the FAQs, the question is, why are you doing this? Google. And you know what the answer is? Because they still control you. Make you more comfortable with Google. Huh? Make you yes. more comfortable with Google. So the Google. government doesn't make that You like that? Well, explain why. That's, uh, well, then you don't have to fear them. They're giving you an out and you can trust them. That's it. You like, you, listen to the psychology. Listen to the psychology. Psychology is like this. If we told you you could never pull out, what would you do? You'd run for the hills. Which, by the way, is what's happening a little bit with Facebook now. Like when I say what's happening, I mean like right now, like this week, last week. It's happening. There are articles in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times about people closing their accounts and pulling out. And you can do that, but the feeling is the more you want to keep me in, the more I want to run. Google says it's brilliant. Now they say in their FAQs why they're doing this, because our motto is, you know what their motto is? Do no evil. That's their motto. Their motto from the beginning was always do no evil. So fitting with, with our motto of do no evil, we feel like how can you keep, how can you, you know, keep people locked in? To our products, so we can. Then they also write, I, I actually put it here in my notes. They write, We're doing this because we want our users to stay with us because they want to. Not because they have to. They write that? While locking users in is a way to keep them in the short term, we believe that the way to keep users in the long term is to keep innovating and making our products better so they can choose to stay with us or not. Oh. So what's the point? By giving you the option to jump ship, they're hoping that you, that you trust them with your data. That you trust them and don't jump ship. Here's the classic, again, it's a classic psychology. It's like, oh, you can run. All right, fine, I'll stay. You can't run, I'm out of here. That's the psychology. Is it psychology or brilliant marketing? Brilliant, on every level it's brilliant. It's Google, of course they're brilliant. They're controlling the conversation right now also. Kidding. So, <laughs> I am but a bot of Google servers. Okay, that's weird. Now, here's the point. In other words, sometimes giving an out is the best way to keep someone in. And it makes sense. 
psychologically, as I said, tell me I can't leave. I'm frantically looking for an escape. Tell me I can leave whenever I want. I'm more likely to stick around. That's what Google knows and it's what they're doing over here. Says Rabbi Akiva. This is what Rabbi Akiva says. Divorce, always an option. You're free whenever, for whatever reason. Even if you find somebody you like better, they didn't do anything. Your spouse did nothing wrong. Whatever. So, quote unquote, wrong. If you consider the other stuff wrong. But there's no, no issue with this fact. Just you found somebody better. No problem. You're free to go. He says this is, this is a powerful tool. Now, he's, according to Rabbi Kiva, according to the commentators, we'll see in text 7, we'll see this expressed. What this does is, allows a person to feel the freedom to stay. Divorce is always an option. If you want out, fine. And the freedom, paradoxically, reduces the angst and the feeling of being stuck. And encourages one to stay in the marriage and take the steps to healing the relationship instead of bolting. So it turns out Google was studying some Talmud. That's that's the way that's the way they're rolling. Uh, Sherry, please read text. This is this is the this is the text that expresses this. One fifty four. Doesn't that sound like Google? Ugh, I hate to compare the two. Lahavdil, right? To, but a union that stands upon the upon the free will of its parties. We want users that cho- that are choosing freely to be, or not that we've handcuffed and, and, and locked. Right? Okay, it's so the same idea. Continue. All the Torah's pathways are peaceful. Even the law of divorce, which is seemingly intended to create separation, is actually intended to engender peace and preserve the integrity of the family unit. The Torah removes the worry from the heart and restores people's serenity. For they are assured in the knowledge that their freedom has not at all been taken from them. Hence, they will not destroy their lives in a fit of anger. Rather, they will remain at peace and wait out the stressful moments in marriage. What calms them in their moments of anger? That which the sages said, even if he finds another more beautiful than she, he may divorce her. This is like a person placed under house arrest. One day of his incarceration has yet to pass, and there he is, sitting in his home, completely miserable. Is it because he finds staying in his home unbearable? That cannot be so, because on many previous occasions he was observed not leaving his home for several days at a time, and he enjoyed and relished that private time. It is clear that it is not staying at home that is so distressing to him, but being coerced to do so. In the absence of the coercion, he would happily sit in his home. That makes sense? Interesting, right? It's an interesting perspective. So it turns out, okay, Rabbi Kitov, brilliant, brilliant fellow. He lived, lived not so long ago, as you see in the bio. He, he, this is how he explains, and how many explain, the general concept of divorce, and especially Rabbi Kiva's opinion, which is, as was quoted here by Rabbi Kitov, even if I was another, another one beautiful, he may. The point is not you should. Of course not. The point is you may. You're never under house arrest. Don't feel like, oh, I can't, I am not allowed to. No. So, so, one so it turns out that as painful as the concept of divorce is, as much as the altar weeps, as we said, God allows divorce because He loves marriage. And if you allow divorce, of course people are going to divorce if you allow divorce. I said, allow, Torah says you can get divorced. But if you allow divorce, what you're also doing is you're saying you're allowing, you're giving the freedom 
for a person to actually stay in the marriage and not feel suffocated, not feel under house arrest. Well, what about the guy who's so literal about it? Goes, you know what? She's not so hot anymore. Uh, no, I didn't really. Like <laughs> no, good, good, good. No, excellent, excellent point. That's why we have the Talmud with us. There's three opinions. What I'm going to posit today, tonight, right now, in a minute or two, is that the three opinions are not actually disagreeing with each other. We have three opinions. They're not. They're not disagreeing with. They're not citing three different opinions. They're citing three different perspectives that complement each other. And you'll see what I mean in a second. That's actually what I'm about to say right now. Here are the three messages. Okay. God allows divorce because He loves marriage and wants it to flourish, as we explained. So it turns out that divorce teaches us, we have three opinions. Shammai is teaching us, again, Shammai's position was, you can only get divorced if there's infidelity. His point is, remember how sacred marriage is, and we must do everything in our power to protect it. And that's a valid perspective. Rabbi Kiva's point is, divorce whenever. What's his point? Not that you should. But that marriage should never feel suffocating, like house arrest. It should always feel like something I'm choosing, I'm into, I'm working on, etc. And the school of Hillel is teaching us, it says about burning the, the, the food, the toast, marriage should never be taken for granted. And we must work on ourselves to become better spouses. Don't be obnoxious. That's not, for, it's not, good stuff. It's not the stuff of a healthy marriage. So it turns out that the three opinions in the Talmud are not disagreeing on what, according to this. This is not an exactly literal way of understanding the Talmud. But they're not disagreeing as far as when are you allowed to get divorced, when are you not allowed to get divorced. They're citing different angles on marriage. Shami is expressing how beautiful marriage is and how much we, we have to work to keep it alive. Rabbi Kiva is saying how even when we're working hard, we never feel like, we, like we're suffocated, like there's no out. There's always an out. And Hillel is saying... Don't burn the toast on purpose. Kind of literally. right? Don't be that person. Don't take the other for granted. right? Don't be a non-mensch. There should be a word for a non-mensch. A jerk. Uh, oh, yeah. Does it rhyme with... No, I'm kidding. Okay, so... <laughs> two syllables. Okay, we can find... I'm sure. Okay, now, here's the point. In practice, when it comes to practice, what does Jewish law say? The law accords with Hill. Which is, again, not with Rebbe Q. We don't say that you actually are really, are really allowed to just, at whim, just divorce. We don't say that. But, what, rather, what would you say? We say, and we don't take the harsh opinion that says you can only, only in case of infidelity. We say, if you're miserable, if the other one is miserable to you, etc., if there's infidelity, and there's, there's a lot of reasons, but it's got to be a good reason in a sense, then there are legal grounds for divorce. Just because you found somebody more attractive? Seriously. I mean, come on. That's not a legal ground for divorce. The point is, though, the Talmud mentions all three. And on a deeper level, all three are accurate. Each three, each opinion of divorce, uh, turns out that the Jewish teachings in divorce are teaching us how to be married. That's the brilliance. The Talmud that talks about divorce and the legal, is actually teaching you how to have a healthy marriage. Number one, recognize how sacred it is and work hard to protect it. Number two, feel, never feel suffocated. Always feel like you have an out. Don't necessarily vote for the, for the door, but feel like you have an out. Don't feel suffocated. Don't feel forced. Feel empowered. And always seek to improve yourself in marriage, as we explained in, at length in lesson four. I thought that was good. What do you guys think? Yeah? Okay. 
Now, let's turn to the next idea. So, we know that marriage, sacred and incredibly worth maintaining, as Shammai said, and we all agree with that. All three opinions coexist. But, let's turn to the other issue. Is it my business? This is a privacy issue. <laughs> so we have Facebook. A privacy issue. Is it my business if somebody else, if another couple is struggling? Should I mix into somebody else's marital business or is it completely inappropriate? Who says I should mix into someone else's business? I shouldn't mix if they ask me. If they don't ask you. I think it depends on the situation. Okay, good. That's, that's a balanced answer. I like that. Give me, give me a little bit more. When yeah, when not. He was burning the toast. Oh, exactly. A lot. And I just wanted her to really realize what kind of person she was getting Okay, so that was, though, to discourage. Okay, so I'm saying like this. Uh, what about encouraging? Yeah. To protect the children. Okay. So you're saying it would be, there would be about... Do you think that the children are being neglected or abused because of something going on in the marriage? I mean, you can see. No, no, what I'm, ta- what I'm talking about is if you know that a couple is going through rough times, so do you seek to intervene and to help and to say, hey... And how well do you know them? So, I do you tell me. Oh, so you think that, okay. Who thinks that, just don't get involved. Don't get involved in somebody else's life. I think most people don't want you to get involved in their life. Okay, good. That's probably the reason that they're having trouble. Well, okay. The Jewish conception of marriage is that it's not a personal and private matter. This is a radical position on marriage. No, 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 God forbid. No, no, we're going to say how yenta, how yenta ing, which is the verb of, I guess, yenta, yenta ing, is completely destructive. No, it's not the justification to being a yenta. On the contrary, this is the, the idea of noticing something and, you know, and actually saying, I'm going to try to help. And I don't feel like I'm imposing or violating privacy. Because Torah tells me that this is something that affects not only the individual couple, but everybody. Let's take a look at text 8. Again, this is a very novel idea. It's only, I mean, I don't know where else it's found, but you know, only Torah could come up with this. Take a look at the text 8, 156. John, take it away. God considers those who bring Oh, so look what happens. So we say, your or a couple's personal peace or strife is not just limited to their experience and to their home. It's not a private matter. What happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. I'm like, I, no. What happens in an individual home actually affects every single individual. That's what it says. According to the Midrash. What does that mean? What does that mean? Many, ma- there are many levels that we can understand this on. I'm going to mention a few of them. And I think it's a very important thing to, uh, to highlight. So, number one, on a basic level, on a simple physical level, we can say that every action, everything that occurs, leaves a physical impression on those around us. So having a happy marriage sets a, a phys- an, an actual example for family, loved ones, community members, the world at large. So, happy marriage, a happy home sets a f- good example and hopefully will lead to other happy homes, etc. 
a miserable home, an unhappy marriage, an unhappy family, etc. Behind closed doors, sure, but the effect leaks out and it could bring down others as well. That's on a very basic level. Which is a big Jewish idea, and that is that we're all leaders, whether we like it or not, we all are leaders in our own right. And what we do has an effect on others. But we can also understand that not on a, such a practical level, but also on a metaphysical level, on a spiritual level. Spiritually, everything that we do, and this is something we've talked about in more Kabbalistic courses, and maybe even some other courses as well, when we've applied some of the ideas to the mystical realm. Anything, every action that we do, has a spiritual effect and creates energy, either positive or negative. And that energy is felt within the world. And so, the energy that we create affects the energy, the collective energy of every single person. That's the way it works. That's the way energy works. We all know this on a, very, on a limited level. Somebody is miserable, having a miserable day. They walk into the room. And what happens? The energy level sinks. I know we're talking about energy levels, and it sounds like a little, ooh, like a little out there. But I think most of us know that energy is real. Energy is real. You can tell. Somebody comes in the room excited. They light. You light up a room. What does it mean? You light up a room. What, they, they're carrying a torch. They got a bit of light bulb. What do you mean to light up a room? What, they got mag light, LED, new. They light up a room. Dwayne knows how to light up a room. Said, right? Said, what do you mean light up a room? You mean your energy that you bring is a positive, healthy, healing, upbeat energy. Somebody is down, they bring, they bring the energy down. It's a Not that there's, there's two things. You can have an absence of bright energy or you can have a presence of dark energy. It's a different, different idea. You're actually, there's actually dark energy, active energy. One of the examples I once gave in our Sunday morning Kabbalah class is if I do... Th- Okay, this is actually a cool example. Look at this. This this projector is projecting what color light? See it on my hand. It's like white. It's bright, bright light. Okay, and it's projecting it's an image. Okay, now look at this. What's happening now? So there's one of two options. Either it's not projecting, or it's actually emitting a dark energy, a dark light, a darker light. You can act, dark light is actually an active force. And we know it's active because it brings everyone down. If it just was not... Imagine, somebody walks in, and they're having a miserable day, and therefore they don't have positive energy. But that's, that's all they're missing. They don't have negative energy either. So fine, they're... So then everyone... Sh- the, the mood should stay neutral. The mood doesn't stay neutral. The mood is actually brought down. But why is it brought down? Because the negative energy is a positive energy. It's positive and negative at the same time. It's an active negative energy. It's an active black energy. Like a, like a black hole. It's not an absence. There's like stuff going on. Okay. From what I understand. Last time I was in a... Okay. Now. So what this means is what's happening... Oh, and so just like we feel it in a room, on a collective level, universal level, the energy that a person, a couple, a family is bringing into their own environment actually, on a, on a broader level, either brings down every, every, all the collective energy of the world, of the universe, or lifts it up. It's either negative, or it's either positive or negative. And it has an objective effect. So a person could say, hey, this, don't get involved. This is just my, this, this is my stuff. Said, Wait a second. You're bringing everything down. It's like the guy that's on a boat, right? You're taking a cruise. 
They're taking a boat ride, a ferry ride. The guy pulls out a power tool. And he said, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm just, I, I need some fresh water. The dude starts drilling under a seat. You're like, what are you doing? He says, wait, I paid for the seat. It's my seat. You worry about your seat. He said, wait, no, 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 you don't get it. If you drill under your seat, we're all going down. This is what Torah is telling us. It's not a private matter. It's not a private matter. Nothing. It's not a private matter. It's not a private matter because the energy brings down, it's either positive or negative, and it's either uplifting or, 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 or bring every, everyone else down. This is an unbelievable idea that has deeper ramifications on another level as well. We need to read text 9. This is, this is an amazing text. Melissa, please read text number 9 on page 157. This is, by the way, this comes from the seventh blessing of the Sheva Brachot, which are the seven blessings that are recited under the Chuppah. We said in the, in the first class, in the second part of the marriage ceremony, which is the Nisuyan, there are seven blessings. And this is number seven. It's also recited in the seven uh, days of celebration, following a marriage, etc. Here's how it goes. What are we saying here? Sounds like an elaborate blessing, but what are we actually saying? The point of this blessing is twofold. Number one, we're thanking God for the happiness of this couple. And then what are we saying? We're asking God for a blessing. And what is the blessing? Mehera Yeshama Ba'ar Yehuda. What are we saying? Let there be speedily heard in the streets of Jerusalem the sound of joy. What, what is that? What is that blessing? What do you think? When? coming of Mashiach. What we're asking for is the Messianic era. When everyone will be happy, when there will be joy and dancing in the streets for always, because there will be no pain and no suffering and no wars and no famine and no hunger and no, and no animosity and no jealousy, all strife and anger and evil and negativity will be removed from the world. That's what we're asking. Under the chuppah, the blessing. What are we saying? Listen to what we're saying. We're saying to the couple as follows. So again, think, think about the juxtaposition. We're saying, we're, 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 we're juxtaposing the happiness of this couple and the happiness, the universal happiness of the Messianic era. It's a connection. Here's what we're saying to the, to the new couple. We're saying to them as follows. You're married. Mazel tov. Congratulations. Your marriage is not a private affair to do with whatever you want. You've been given a gift to cherish, to uphold, to cultivate, to make flourish. It's not just about you. And it's not just about me. It's about everyone here. It's about everyone who's ever lived. Because you see, marriage is a microcosm of the universe. Your marriage, your home, is a microcosm of the universe. If you create love in your mini-universe, you are creating love and harmony in the bigger universe. From the beginning of time, humanity has been striving for the time 
of universal peace, love, and harmony. That's the goal that we've all been working toward. And we call that goal Mashiach. And we tell the couple there under the chuppah, you have the power to bring Mashiach by how you live your marriage, by how you, by how your home runs. Your harmonious marriage, your microcosm of harmony and love and peace and tranquility is the way to bring that into the macrocosm, into the universe itself. And so we tell the couple, we're counting on you. We're counting on you. That's the connection. We say, you're happy? If you're, if you're happy, if you have joy and happiness, groom and bride, gladness, jubilation, cheer, delight, love, friendship, harmony, and fellowship, you know what follows? Mashiach. It's up to you. And you know what? We're all counting on you. And not only all of us here, but everyone who's ever been is counting on you. Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Everyone's waiting for you, looking at you on this day. How will you live your life? How will you have your home? How will, you be, how will your marriage run? It's all riding on you. Talk about Jewish guilt. It's an uplifting message. It's an uplifting message. And the message is, if you experience joy forever in your marriage, we will all soon experience everlasting joy. Don't let us down. So marriage is not a private matter. Each of us is called upon to actively reach out to those who are struggling in their marriage because it doesn't only affect them, it affects all of us. And not only all of us, but all of us who ever were. It affects the entire plan. You know, as Tevye said in Fill on the Roof, Will this spoil God's... Will it spoil your vast eternal plan if I'm rich, right? Something like that? I never watched it, but from what they tell me in the yeah, clips. No. Yeah. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I was a wealthy if man? If I was a wealthy man. I don't have an answer to that question. But I will say that the message to the groom and bride under the chuppah is you have the ability to bring about the fulfillment of... God's vast eternal plan and bring, and bring a better world. It's by your harmony in your marriage is what brings about harmony in the greater universe. So all of this helps us understand the unique crisis we have today. And I'm calling it a crisis. We have, and maybe the crisis that we have. Divorce, without a doubt, in my opinion, is the challenge of our generation. The question is why? Why? What's happening now? And you could turn to many media, movie, whatever you can. You can go. Let's go spiritually. You want? You want? The Rebbe gave an amazing answer. He said like this: The reason is because we're close to the Messianic era. We're close to Mashiach. The Talmud says it's a very quick text. The Talmud says, Mark, text eleven one fifty eight. No, no, no. Text eleven. 158. The world will last for 6,000 years after which we enter the Messianic Talmud says 6,000 years. You know what year we're up to? 5772. We're up, upcoming to 5772. So if you look at it as each thousand years is a day of the week, so 7th millennia is the Messianic era is Shabbos. So we're right now Friday afternoon, but late. And we know late Friday afternoon, you could, all, you could already bring in Shabbos. You could light candles and you could already go Shabbos. So we're already, it's in the air. So here's how the Rebbe explains it. So we don't have to worry about December 12th. 
Now we're good. Is that the Mayan calendar? The Mayan calendar does not Right, they found, they found an extension. They're like, whoops, we've got it wrong. There's an app for that. It's just, add on to it. We just like we just like sensitization. Wait, wait, so wait, wait, I don't want to get off the mind because so, I'm, I'm I'm right here. I'm right in the cusp of Mashiach. Like we're right here. So. No. I don't know. I, I don't know. How I miss. Okay. So again, wait. Let me focus. Let me focus. So the closer we get to the Messianic era, to Mashiach, to a to a perfect time, to a time of harmony, the more. We know there are forces in us. So the more that the energy of opposition, of unholiness, the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, etc., the negative forces have to counterbalance the supreme influx of positive energy. So when you have a lot of positive energy, there's going to be an influx of negative energy. Say, whoa, whoa, slow it down, cowboy. And so that's why we see. Look, let's take a look at text 12. Let's read it. Denise, take a look at text. Please read text 12, 158. i.e. to our times. So a lot of this is mystical. So you have the other side. It sounds like, ooh, like what are we talking about? A lot of this is Kabbalistic terminology that's translated literally, so it's going to sound a little out there. The point is like this. We live in a very special time. We live in a time that we are on the cusp of a harmonious world, a better world. And because of that, there are, ne- there are forces of negativity that are trying to prevent this from happening, which is why, Kabbalistically, mystically, we find that relationships are more challenging today than ever. It's because there's more of that negative energy in the air to try to balance, counterbalance the extreme positive energy that's in the air. But he says at the end of the letter, you should know that we're only given by God a challenge that we have the ability and the strength to overcome, which means that as challenging as it is, we have the ability to overcome, and we know what's at stake. What's at stake is, first of all, harmony in our lives, and also harmony on a universal level. It's very powerful stuff. Again, it's out of context, you know, out of context of Kabbalah and etc. It sounds a little, but it's it's a very very powerful idea. Um, now we need to we're going to do one more thing. We're going to do one more thing. Okay, based on what we said, 
it actually is our business if somebody is going through a difficulty in their marriage. Now, it doesn't mean you should go up to a stranger and say, hey, I noticed you guys were arguing. Can I step in and give some advice? It doesn't mean exactly that. But what it does mean is that to whatever extent we can, we need to look to help foster harmony and love and peace between spouses, amongst families, amongst communities, amongst the world at large as well. But we're, our focus is on marriage and families. So it's not that it's a private matter, it doesn't affect me, it's their matter, they're going to be... Judaism says, get involved to whatever extent will be accepted, but be productive. So what do I do if I see somebody, if I know somebody, whatever, that's in, perhaps, that, that, that needs a little bit of a boost in the happiness in their marriage? So how can I help? So again, you've got to make sure that they're going to listen to you, number one. Number two is send them the link to the audio from this course. They can't go wrong. Art of Marriage, six weeks, I mean, it's... Okay, so in all seriousness, we mentioned the, I mentioned it, the, I think, in the first class, the, all the way to the beginning of the course, that there is no substitute for authentic Jewish marriage wisdom to help heal relationships. It's very crucial. Rabbis and Rebbitsons are always available to help in any way possible and to direct to the appropriate channels when necessary, the professionals, etc. But if you know somebody who's struggling in their marriage... Encourage them to get Jewish counseling. It's a very different experience than secular counseling. That's number one that I'll mention. But outside of this, there's something else that's very important to mention. And that is that sometimes in trying to help somebody that confides in us, we actually do more harm than good. I'll give you an example. Conflict arises, and someone confides in us that they're going through a difficult time. So we tell the person that we're close with, we say, stay strong, you've got to stand up for yourself, right? Ah, they should sh- uh, shape up or ship out. You don't need them. Yeah, you don't need them. Uh, anyway, so you mean it to be supportive. You're being all supportive, but it's destructive. You know, they say the road to, what is it, the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions. Here's the idea. And of course, if the situation is abusive, get them out of there. That goes without saying. There's no, this is never a question. If the situation is abusive, if there's real abuse going on, when I say real, what, if there's abuse going on, get them out. But if there's just conflict, I say just, I don't realize, but if there's conflict, don't be driving a wedge between spouses. It's terrible. It actually harms the person that you're purporting to help. Take a look at, uh, at text 13. Very interesting letter. Burton, take it away. From your letter, I find it particularly alarming that your sister is currently staying in the parents' home. Sadly, we have, been, we have clearly seen the disastrous consequences of people mixing into matters that are between husband and wife. This is true even if those who intervene are very close to the affected parties. At times, the intervention of those who are close to one of the parties has greater potential to cause damage inasmuch as they are very close to one of the spouses, there's greater possibility for damage, more so than when a stranger intervenes. And we all know what, what the Rebbe is talking about in this letter. Right? Somebody, a, a parent says, oh, you don't need him anyway, you don't need her anyway, etc., etc., under the guise of encouraging. But what's happening is you're driving a wedge between the couple. Now, if, if, if there's no hope for the marriage, then there's no hope for the marriage. But to be supportive doesn't mean that you have to denigrate or you have to knock the other. You can be supportive. Here's the point. You can be supportive in a way that is 
healthy and uplifting as opposed to cutting down, diminishing, or being derogatory about the other spouse. That person's spouse, it's their spouse. Okay, you're talking to, maybe you're talking to your kid, but it's their spouse. You have their best intention in mind, but are you really having their best intention in mind? Or is it your best intention in mind? Their best intention maybe is to be with their husband or their wife. So by you putting down, it's, we're, we're saying it's a very sensitive topic here. It's a very sensitive topic. What we see from the Torah, and we're, we're, I'm going to wrap this up in, in three minutes. What we see from the Torah is how careful Hashem is, how careful God is in never diminishing, in never creating a negative, um, a negative perception between spouses. God, in fact, fudges the truth, if you can say this, which, which I just did, in order to maintain marital harmony and peace amongst spouses. Text 14a. Mushki, take it away. When, when Sarah hears the news that she's going to have a child, she says, What? My husband's so old. When God repeats it to Abraham, he says, Oh, Sarah said about herself that she's old. But don't worry, I'll give her a kid anyway. So what happens? God changes her quote. Instead of being, Abraham, you're so old, when he relays this to Abraham, now why do you relate to Abraham? It's another story. But the context, again, we're pulling it out of context. But when he, when he does, when God repeats it to Abraham, he says, Sarah said about herself. Why? Because you change the truth to foster peace amongst husband and wife. It wasn't a malicious statement. And it's not your job to create, God recognizes, not his job to create a wedge between husband and wife. It's his job to foster peace. When you have peace and truth, and they're colliding, I say this as often as I can, when peace and truth collide, you choose peace and you discard truth. That is the rule of thumb. You have to be very careful with this. But you choose peace and discard truth. When your wife asks you, Honey, how do I look in this dress? You choose peace and you discard. No, this is, this is, what the, this is the model that we see from Torah. This is God's example. So, here's the point. Here's the point. You know what? Let's read 14b. Shtenra, read 14b from the Mishnah. Not only love peace, pursue peace. You be relentless. You move after peace. You seek peace wherever it can be found. Which means that you're not waiting for peace to, you know, to, to say, Hey, here I am. You're looking for opportunities to foster peace. Which means that when a couple is in front of you, you compliment one in front of the other. Because that creates a good feeling. You don't show them up. Yeah. So, another couple's around. So, I want to I wanna be the big man. I want to be... I want to... Kind of... To my own horn, what that what's going to happen is it may diminish her husband. Right, this is again if if I'm so awesome, it may diminish her husband in her eyes. Be like, oh my gosh, my husband's not like that guy. He's so awesome. He's got an anus keeper. So what's the (laughs) A is for awesome? Let's go. Okay, so here's the point. We don't do that. You know why we don't do that? Because our job is to foster peace and pursue it and to encourage it and never, God forbid, the opposite. 
And so this is profoundly important when, again, going back to our discussion, when speaking with a couple or with an individual that is going through a difficult time. Don't knock, again, if it's dangerous and you, they need to be out, then you, then you pull them out. But if they're just struggling with stuff, with conflict, don't demean the other party, don't demean their spouse. It's their spouse. If you have their best interest in mind, help them resuscitate, help them elevate their marriage, help them get a healthy marriage, if possible, obviously. If not possible, not possible. But if possible, help them that way. Never diminish. I want to conclude with one text, because I think it's so beautiful. It's so, it's so beautiful. And the message here will capture what we've spoken about the last 15 minutes. Text 15a, Yaakov. One day when I was walking down the street with one of my teachers, we were approached by a young couple. The wife said to my teacher, Isn't it true that stirring the soup while it's on the stove would violate the Sabbath? Tell my husband, he doesn't know. My teacher looked thoughtful for a moment and said, I'll have to look it up and get back to you. The couple went on. Then noticing my puzzled expression, my teacher explained, you're surprised at my answer because the wife's question was such a simple one. You and I both know that she was correct, but for me to have known the answer without so much as a glance at the code of Jewish law would have made her husband appear foolish. My teacher had wisely chosen to allow himself to appear foolish rather than diminish a husband in his wife's eyes. Why? Because marriage is sacred. To do anything that diminishes it, discourages it, or dulls it is wrong. To say something discouraging or disparaging about a husband to a wife, about a wife to a husband, is an unpardonable sin. That's from Rabbi Manus Friedman's book, Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore? Brilliant book to, uh, to purchase if you don't have it. So, this is what it means to pursue peace. To pursue, isn't that a great story? By the way, stirring the pot, if you want to know why stirring the pot is not okay on the fire, it's because it helps cook. So even though it's cooking on its own, but you're, you're adding in the cooking, so it's considered cooking a job. She was trying to stir the pot, exactly. How ironic, right? Or how something non-ironic. Okay, so this is what's going on. We've got to pursue peace, always foster love, goodwill, compliment the other spouse in front of the other spouse, say, oh, wow, you look great. You know, okay, appropriately. Now, in conclusion, a great person once said, if you want to make a difference in the world, start at home. Who said that? I don't know. If no one else said it, then I said it. And then you just have to delete the, uh, the, great, man, the great person once said. Um, that's it. You start with your home. We all do many important things, and we have many important obligations. But the most important, our absolute top priority, must be our relationships to make sure we have happy, healthy marriages, families, homes, etc. Every effort must be made, every stone, un- no stone unturned, all resources expended to endeavor to have a happy marriage. And this is reflected in one final law that I want to share with you regarding Hanukkah candles. You thought we were going there. Hanukkah candles? No. Hanukkah candles. Very important mitzvah to light the Hanukkah menorah. The law says that if you don't have money to buy candles, so you borrow. And if you can't find anywhere to borrow, so then you pawn stuff. Sell stuff. It's an important mitzvah. If you only have enough money to buy Hanukkah candles or wine for Kiddush, which do you do? Hanukkah candles. But if you have only enough money to buy Hanukkah candles or Shabbos candles, you buy Shabbos candles. Hanukkah candles are put by the door or by the window on the outside. It's to shed the, spread the light into the world. Shabbos candles are lit in your home. It's great to expend energy to bring light into the world, change, 
to being productive, to doing accomplishing great things in the world for others, for community, for the universe, it's amazing. For the company, for your it's great. But your home trumps everything. Your Shabbos candles are the most important things in your life. The light that you bring into your home, into your family, trumps everything else. So this is the message that I want to leave you with. After all is said and done, we've had a lot of, a lot of stuff. We've talked about a lot of stuff. And I encourage everyone to review it, and etc. But remember one thing. Remember what the priority is. When we have in mind what the priority is, things follow. Marriage, relationships, family is number one. Everything else comes second. Yeah, it's, it also is a priority. It's not the number one priority. And please God, with our desire and priority to have a happy and healthy marriage, with God's help, we will indeed achieve that goal. So I want to thank you all for taking this journey with me over the last six weeks. I hope it has profoundly affected you as it has me. And uh, may we enjoy, indeed, beautiful, happy relationships happily ever after. A few quick announcements. First, round of applause. All right, let's, uh, we can get off mic and relax for a